Today on Hungry for Wisdom, the door is narrow, but it's cool because wisdom is skinny. One of the most famous verses you've ever ignored, and turns out that cutting your heart in half is not a recipe for abundant life. It is episode 21. Turn it up! Did you hear my voice crack on that one? (laughs) That was very embarrassing. Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor at Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. Yeah, let's dig in. We're going to gain wisdom in our teen years. All right, that's enough of those shenanigans. Today's episode is dedicated to the e-bike. The e-bike, I say. Because I'm always in favor of finding a lazy way to do a healthy activity. So this kind of streamlining, I think, is uniquely American or at least Western. And while counterproductive for health purposes, is a brilliant shot of morphine in your self-esteem gland. So to whoever invented a device that could convince us that we have exercised while paying through the nose to let a battery do it for us, I salute you, sir. On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, we're going to be taking a look at a very famous passage. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. There's stuff going on in the studio you can't see. So me and Ben, what's up, Pastor Ben? How you doing, man? I'm doing well, sir. All right, good. We were having a a conversation earlier about getting an e-bike, and it just spun me up on how brilliant I think that is. That's where that came from. All right, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Messed up the drop. Worst episode ever. This is the last episode of the season, and you would think that I'd have a thing or two figured out by now. Nope. Here, here we go. My voice cracks. Hip hop guy stutters. All right, very famous passage here. In fact, it's one of my wife's favorite passages. Let me rephrase that because that sounded weird. I only have one wife, right? And this is one of her favorite passages. Like this isn't one of the favorite passages of one of my. What am I trying to say? Your wife. My, my one Your singular wife. wife. I'm qualified right. as a pastor. And this is one of her singular favorite passages. And so what, what it says here, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Good old-fashioned Hebrew parallelism. You guys have heard me barking about this for the whole season now. We have to understand the couplet, the parallelism, saying the same thing twice. This one, in particular is a contrasting parallelism. Do this, don't do that, and essentially it means the same thing. Trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. Because here's the deal, guys. You can't do both. To whatever degree you're trusting in yourself, you are doing that instead of trusting in the Lord. A couple of facts about me. I weigh about 200 pounds, and I have two feet. So let's say that I stand on two chairs. One of them is red. One of them is tie-dye. Because I've never seen a tie-dye chair, and I wish that somebody would make one. So I put them next to each other, and I stand on one chair with each with each foot, right? So now I'm, I'm trusting each chair, the red chair and the tie-dye chair, to carry 100 pounds of me. So if I lean just a little bit to my left, now I'm trusting the red chair, let's say, with 110 pounds, which means I'm only trusting the tie-dye chair with 90, so on and so forth. The more you lean, the more you trust one, the less you trust the other. So to whatever degree I'm leaning on or trusting the red chair... I am trusting it instead of trusting the tie-dye chair with that same amount of weight. Now, if I put both feet on the red chair, then I'm, I'm not denying the existence of the tie-dye chair. I'm not rejecting it and saying it's offensive to my sensibilities or anything. It may have a perfectly legitimate function. I'm just choosing to trust the red chair for the function of keeping me elevated and vertical at this particular moment. 
So when it comes to who guides us in life, we as Christians, we have this tendency to do two things. We'll, we'll like pray about it. We'll pray about a decision and then we'll go and do whatever seems smart to us, regardless of what the result of the prayer was. Maybe God brings a scripture to mind. Maybe he says, go ask somebody. Maybe he gives us an automatic download of wisdom, which happens on occasion, but Whatever the result of that that prayer is, we'll go ahead and trust our own reasoning, our own logic instead. So we put 100 pounds of our weight on God and 100 pounds on our own logic. And Solomon is saying, yo, put 200 pounds on God. Take your other foot off of your own logic. All means all. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't lean on it much. It says don't lean on it. In all your ways, acknowledge him. This is a very inclusive statement. All means all here. Now, that doesn't mean that your logic doesn't have a role to play, right? Solomon is the same guy who wrote the rest of the book of Proverbs, which tells us how to think our way through life. He has a great vested interest in forming our understanding so that we can live wisely. But what he's saying here is that when your understanding conflicts with what God is saying, then forget your understanding and go with God. Your understanding is great and it has many great uses, but on occasion, it's, it's going to buckle under the weight of some situations. You're going to have to operate on information that you don't have or your understanding will just fail you in some way. But God's wisdom never does. So 99% of your decisions in life, they're, they're not super complex, right? you you got to make a, a conscious decision on something and it'll require your reason in some measure. You're going to have to put the pieces together and do the math. And Solomon is saying that even in those, God should be primary, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. But... You're going to pray, and then you're going to apply some reason. You'll make, you, you'll make your decision. But then there will be that 1%, those times where God's will seems like a really bad idea. You know, And you know what I'm talking about, and we all feel bad about saying it, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Sometimes what God says seems like a bad idea. It's like, God, are you sure about that? Like, This does not seem like it's going to turn out well. God, I see what your word says, but this goes against every survival instinct I have. You know, Those things happen. And so Solomon says, in those moments, bank on God. You have a choice to make, and you want two feet on the red chair. You won't be sorry at the end of life. You won't be sorry, certainly in eternity. And the result is that he will make your path straight. So like Jesus in uh, Luke 13, right? He says, uh, strive to enter the narrow door. And when you trust in the Lord with all your heart and you acknowledge him in all your ways, he takes you straight through that door. And that's all Solomon is saying here, right? All means all, and you won't be sorry at the end of the day, at the end of your life. And by the way, I think it's worth just you know saying for a second that being half-hearted as a Christian is a recipe for misery and disaster. Don't be half-hearted. This is, this is some nonsense. Like if you're a disciple, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he gets it all, right? So all means all, and when he speaks, then he has all authority. Well, he has all authority, all authority regardless. But when he speaks to something, that is the authoritative, definitive word on what must happen. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, especially at the expense of following the voice of God. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, I've got here with me, of course, the illustrious Pastor Ben. I already asked you how you're doing. I was about to say how you're doing again, but I know you're doing well. Why are you doing well? Because it's a beautiful day outside, and like it. my God has fully redeemed me, and I can rest in him. Boom, and the list goes on. Amen. All right, and we also have with us uh, our, our one and only, our, our favorite bald producer ever. Nice. 
Also, I, well, I mean, technically, you're our least favorite bald producer, too, because you're the only one. Yes. How are you doing, producer Tim? I am well. Thank are you, you comfortable with me discussing your hairline in public this much? Absolutely. Okay. I am full of joy. Not full of hair, but full of joy. <laughs> hey, man. All right. So uh, we got, for, for this is and that's this week, we've got uh, some pastoral questions that have come in, and um, we have not considered these. Ben, I don't even think you've seen these yet. I just Ooh. saw them in the copy-paste, and uh, I think there's some good ones. Oof. Yeah. You can hit us up at, uh, at the, our Twitter handle, at GT Micropastor, or you can uh, just send them in through email. Email us through the website or whatever. Hit up Dustin at graceandtruthcommunity.com. Whatever you want to do, man. Get in touch. Just, uh, you know, pull us aside on a Sunday. Just say, hey, I got questions. Write them down, and we'll hit them on a podcast if we get time. So uh, I'm going to let Pastor uh, Producer Tim. <laughs> Dude, I almost accidentally ordained you. Wow. Did you ever hear that story about Athanasius where he got accidentally baptized as a kid and somebody was like, it counts. He's good. That was his baptism, supposedly. Oof. Yeah. Some kids were playing and they, they pretended to baptize each other. And it was, uh, who was the, the church father that saw it? Anyway, he said, well, the, the guy got the script right. So that, that counts. He said the right words. <laughs> Jack uh, up the gosh, at church camp all the time, we were, quote, baptizing people, but usually it was in the form of like half drowning right yeah dunking and half drowning and oh baptizing you yeah very aggressive revenge-based baptisms yes yeah exactly. all right producer tim let's uh let's roll through these what do we got all right this isn't that's the first question i think this is inspired by a very popular song last year is god's love reckless is God all the overwhelming more superlative language reckless love of god had my own worship moment there. Pretty special to me. Is that what that was? Yeah. (laughs) I'm in the zone. Don't bother me. Reckless love. Yeah. Did you ever hear his explanation for that song? No. If, in fact, this... Because I heard that and was a little bit offended by the reckless love of God, but Mm -hmm. he's reckless in, in the respect that he gives all his love to us despite the fact there's no guarantee of our response. That's the author of that song's idea is that he just gives out that love to the max. And on paper, it would be a bad investment. In, in, yeah. in the American ease where, where, you know, yeah, there's no guarantee of ROI. So in that way, it's mm-hmm. reckless. Yeah. Now, I have recently changed my perspective on this to a small degree. But before I get into that, your face is contorted beyond recognition right now. And I feel like you want to you rant you have the floor, sir. No, I, I don't have a necessarily a desire to rant per se. I just there are some times where I think over and superlative and artistic language is wonderful in poetry. It's wonderful in a lot of different things. It, I think, in the area of worship, and I and I'll be really careful here. Oftentimes, it can be distracting from what you're trying to communicate. And the word reckless, yes, it's definitely. The author has the right to interpret it as he wrote it, but the, as as a hearer of it, is it something that I necessarily would put in in my quote rotation of worship music? And 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 in that particular case, I might not because it might be more distracting to the hearer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want them to be considering the love of God, not what I meant by reckless. Yep, and yep, I would yep. not want them to use their sometimes their their. Uh, the common parlance of the word reckless instead of you know, instead of like, okay, well, that description right there, that God put all of his love on the table without an expectation of a, of a return on investment. 
interesting concept because I'd also would like to look at that theologically as well in the sense of was it was God really did did does he does he not in fact expect his believers to do good works which he purposed in advance for them to do and as a result of his love because we love because he first loved us that it, in fact it is a it's an excellent return on investment right. also recognizing the fact that he loved us and bought into the deal before we could even, you know, while we were yet sinners, right? Let me throw something out that I I do not personally agree with. If somebody said this to me, I'd argue with it, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it because you're, you're in this zone and and you're you're explaining this very well. So it was reckless in the sense that he sacrificed the, the Jesus sacrificed his own well being for it with no concern for his own safety. He ran into the, the front gates of hell. And that was a, a reckless act based on love for us. Okay. Could he have meant that? I mean, would, would that, would that fly? It would, I mean, it would fly. And I, and I, and I, and I do definitely, I don't want to, I would say that, you know, again, what was, what was Jesus' primary purpose, right? To glorify God, right? And so his love for his father and the purpose for which his father had sent him is what really drove it. Are we as the secondary object, as, as the, as the church, as his beloved bride in that? Of course it is. But I would say more the reckless love or the put-it-all-on-the-table love, if we're talking about that particular idea, I would almost put that more as Jesus' love for his Father and for his plan and for his Father's glory, yeah. driving him to the cross, of which then we are yet beneficiaries of, much like the Gentile woman when Jesus goes, uh, you know, says, hey, I, can I, should I give the dogs what is sacred? And she goes, hey, burn. Even we get, even we get some scraps from the table, we get, to, we get the benefit of... Jesus' ultimate love for his father's plan yeah. and to see his father glorified. There's one more little piece that he says, and I think it's really amazing. He says, he leaves the 99 mm-hmm. to go after the one. Oh, yeah. And it's like, that's that would, part of it, right? As he yep. goes, and, and getting the one, and he says, I'm the one, he had to come, get, you know what I mean? I'm well, and that's the actually, uttermost one. Yeah, and that's actually the... the, the uh, passage out of Luke 15 that sort of sort of gave me a, a pause and a second thought on this song because the song that lyric I don't, I don't have anything wrong with, as far as I know with the song in particular I haven't gone and looked at all the lyrics or anything like that but I'm pretty touchy about worship music I've got a very short fuse with with you <laughs> really can you let me finish the sentence I, I don't know that I just have a short fuse in general I probably do but I mean like with K, with K-Love music right like the stuff you hear on the radio because there, there's no discernment and there's no standards and they'll just Agreed. take anything right and yeah. so it's like I, I almost just expect crap at this point and so it doesn't take much to convince me that something is crap so when I heard that you know oh God's love is reckless my initial reaction to that was no I'd say it was pretty well planned actually I mean you know Jesus here fulfilled 360 mm-hmm. plus prophecies during his lifetime most of which in the in the last like year and a half and many in the last week of his life he was he was um intentional determined and focused on everything that he did and he he obeyed God in every detail and when you say reckless love it gives it, it gave me the impression that he was just running around frantically saying how can I love somebody how can I save somebody and he was like um it was almost a panic type of thing right um so where where I thought he was coming from there I disagree with that wholeheartedly God's love is not poorly considered poorly thought out or poorly executed right but then I'm reading Luke uh, 15 because since I'm preaching through Luke right now, I uh, uh, I was prepping ahead a little bit, which by the way, I do that occasionally. <laughs> Most people don't think that, but I do. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at this thing and as I'm studying 
Luke 15, 1 through 10, right? You got the parable of the lost sheep, and then you got the parable of the lost coin. And I'm thinking about this, and if if a shepherd leaves 99 sheep exposed in the field with no shepherd to go and get one, there is a level of exposure there that he's he's assuming that risk on the other sheep. And you would look at that shepherd and say, that's, you know, to use that, that term again, that's not a good investment, right? You, you let the one go because it would be reckless to leave, you know, let's say reckless to leave the 99 to go get him. And God says, or Jesus says here, no, God did that and it was good. And since you're the one, you should be glad about that, right? Mm-hmm. And then with the uh, lost coin, Right, what woman, so verse 8, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? All right, fair enough. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there's joy. Okay, so let's say she throws a party. That's very a very common scene in the Gospels. It's a Matthew type of thing. She throws a party. She invites people over. She's feeding them. She's spending more on the party than she found in the coin right? That's a bizarre trade-off. <laughs> and so the, uh, and, and so then I was thinking, okay, I could maybe see the, the phrase reckless love being poetically rendered to capture this idea that this doesn't make sense in, in, um, you know, mathematical terms necessarily, but there's a higher plane on which to consider this. And then in the chorus where he quotes leaving the 99, it's like, okay, I think he's tapping into that. So while I would not, for all the reasons you said, you know, it might communicate the wrong thing or be distracting. I probably wouldn't, if, if I wrote that song, I'd, I'd probably be like, eh, it's not going to be super helpful. But I'm also not going to bash the dude as hard as I would have yeah. three months ago either. That's where I'm at. Yeah. And I, and I think, again, I absolutely want there to be good artistic license in yeah. any kind of poetry. Um, and, and really in any kind of music, I think there's really good, there's good space for artistic license. I'm just, I, I sometimes go in the context of a worship service where I'm, I'm really working hard to labor in common tongue to, to uh, to elevate people's eyes towards Jesus, towards God the Father and His amazing plan, and 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 how that's revealed, and to elevate their eyes to the gospel. I'm again, this is just me. You don't have to be a believer in order to believe this or anything like that. Is is that is that would I use that particular word or that you know sure. some of the more euphemisms that we use, like for example, yeah, when heaven and earth meet like a sloppy wet kiss, I probably wouldn't necessarily advocate for that particular. Story. And I definitely wouldn't let you if you, and nor would you let me if I tried that in public. Thank you. A sloppy wet kiss. Oh gosh, what's it that that, uh, that Carrie Job song? I, I want to sit at your. I want to sit at your feet, drink from the cup in your hand, lay back against you and breathe, feel your heart beat. And I'm just like, I want to be gagged right now is what I want. <laughs> like, dude, how, how feminine, like, like overly sentimental can you get about a relationship with God who identifies himself in masculine terms? Like, dang girl, go easy. Yeah. Short fuse. <laughs> but I do think it's weird that like people have, have sung that in worship services before and you got big yeah. dudes with, you know, uh, sleeve tattoos wearing flannel with a beard down to their belly button and they're sitting there going, I want to feel your heartbeat, Jesus. It's like, man, yeah, something we're, we're missing something. Here. Yeah. Although I, I, I just on the same vein, um, that kind of insane love maybe, or mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not going to use another word that another famous author used, but that, that kind of you got me curious now, you know, um, crazy love, you know, Oh, that, crazy love, yeah. that kind of love that, that makes zero sense to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what the father in the prodigal son, which is the next parable there yep. 
displays that. It's like, what are you talking about? That kid just totally said he wished you were dead and took, you know, a third of your money and, yeah. and spent it on, you know, I mean, the, the son totally, the, the, the older brother in there totally lays out the indictment. He had a point. He has a point from a world standpoint. Yeah. And, and, and nobody in that day and age would be shocked if the father instead took the son to the whipping post and had him beaten. Yep. Instead, it's, no, I'm, I'm going to throw a party because my son's back. And, and the cross of, is foolishness exactly. to those who are perishing. So it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. And so yeah. is it reckless in that sense if we're going to use that particular thing? Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. All right, so let, let's, uh, let's arrive at a conclusion here. Is, is it heretical to say that God's love is reckless? No. no. Is it maybe imprecise? Mm-hmm. I would say yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna smack a dude too hard for that. Yeah. All right, what else we got, Tim? I can't wait to tell you answer this question. We just read through Exodus, and this is just so relevant in Exodus. Here we go. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Oh, well, okay. So the the theological answer is because he felt like it. Amen. <laughs> I'm done. I got nothing left to contribute. Oh, for his own glory, right? He's, oh, show that's, a, that's a better theological answer. Yeah, Exodus 7, Exodus 14, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and what you tell him to do, Moses, it ain't going to work. Very interesting passage. Well, and if you think about it, if God, you know, again, trusting the divine sovereignty of God, he's laying down a situation, or he's, he's, you know, or allowing a situation to arise where it looks virtually impossible for the people of Israel to be rescued, and it is through the, it is through a, you know, a series of impossible events that only God could orchestrate that he then displays his great might. He cripples the world's leading superpower at the time with the world's most advanced wartime technology and yet just lays him out flat. And so it's, so when it comes to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, you're going to have this leader that will not listen to reason and, and yet you're going to, and he's going to display his amazing power over what most people in that common time would have thought, what, Egypt, what they're they're the superpower. They have yeah. chariots. <laughs> we can't do anything about that. Yeah. So, for my own glory, I love the yeah. fact that he told us, "I'm going to harden his heart." Yeah. And because he does things from his perspective, and I'm going to harden his heart. We can you hear the all the ACLU lawyers crying out? Wait a minute, it's not Jeez, fair. <laughs> Well, we could edit this. <laughs> no, no, keep it in. But I think, but I think, yeah, it's like, hey, wait, you didn't hurt my heart. I hurt my heart. Yeah, <laughs> I chose hell myself. Do you like that? It's me, me, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's you know, look, th- this goes back to the uh, the discussion we were having on on election and whatnot. God is under no obligation to invite people to respond to him. When he does, it's of grace. It's Amen. all of grace. It's not of obligation. We've got this really bizarre idea, this this assumption that we are, must be, by necessity and by definition, as, as free humans, we must be free over our own heart condition. And you just can't find that in the Bible. And so the the idea that God hardened his heart, it, it really overloads our circuitry in you know, in our world, you just, yeah, I can't handle it. Like somebody just told me that, that humanity is not God over humanity. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point of the Bible. So I don't, we, we get this question a lot and I think it's a really great question. I, I don't want to, as, as I get, as I sound impatient with it, I'm not being impatient with the question. It's a great one. I'm being impatient with the, the cultural philosophy that we all have kind of downloaded onto our hardware 
that makes the this passage so offensive to us, right? How could God override Pharaoh's? No, Pharaoh was a was a rebel sinner against God. He hardened his heart repeatedly to enslave the Jews, and he oppressed people. And God turned him over to his his sin and hardened his heart incrementally over time, which is what Pharaoh was already clearly choosing anyway. So there's not even a conflict here. And if there was, God still gets to choose to do what he wants. So Romans nine, he hardens whom he hardens. And he has mercy on whom he has mercy. Amen. And uh, yeah, that's that's that. What are you looking at there, Ben? I'm just thinking again, what is the purpose of even God softening our heart for salvation? It's And I was reading in, bringing the Bible so I can see it better here. Boy, getting old in glasses, i tell you. Um, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that's really, even our salvation is all about God's glory, yeah. not about mine. So if I can hang anything on there, right? It's like, I did it, I did, you know, or I deserved it at some point, or I was preveniently given enough grace to deserve something, right? That's, that puts a little bit more of the glory on my shoulders versus us going, we are but beggars, you know? Yeah, 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 and that that set up the hardening of Pharaoh's heart set up one of the most magnificent acts of salvation of all of history, right? Agreed. So when you when you look at the Exodus event where Israel crosses the Red Sea in chapter fourteen, twelve or fourteen, I think it's fourteen. Anyway, um, when when Israel crosses the Red Sea on dry land, that moment becomes the referent that becomes the reference point for the rest of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament claiming that God is powerful, glorious, and saves his people by his power and his grace, right? It's like, well, hey, look at the Exodus. In fact, I'm finding this in uh, as, as I'm studying through Luke, that as Jesus, in, in Luke 9.51, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, right? And he says, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem for, and if you read that in Greek, it says, for my Exodus. And so what he's saying there is, I'm going to go and do in Jerusalem on the cross what God did back in the book of Exodus when he uh, when he he brought Israel out of Egypt and delivered them. And so it's a, it's a paradigm for salvation. And then as you look through the rest of the Old Testament, what what you see is that God's people are saved and then they must fight. So even like when they go into the promised land, right? They cross the Jordan River on dry land. Again, that's a straight callback to Exodus. And they go in, but then they have to fight. So you've got salvation. You're being you're being saved by God. And then you've got the fight of being saved. You've got the sanctification process afterwards. You see that carrying into the New Testament as well, where we're saved. And that's that's an event. We are we are delivered from our sin and from death. We are given eternal life. We are born again. We're regenerate, and then we got to spend the rest of our life until glory, fighting the Roman seven fight. Right. So there's so, so the the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not a singular event to look at out of its historical context. God was doing something there that resulted in our salvation, you and me. And so God's glory is is seen from every angle, except from the narrow angle that looks at Pharaoh not getting to choose his own heart condition in some solitary moment and saying that's an injustice. In the grand scheme of things, it just that that it, some people have an objection to that. And in the grand scheme of what God is doing, that objection just gets drowned out in his in his glorious plan and what he's doing there. Yeah, and I think to be fair, that also you start getting into the whole what aboutism when it comes to. Uh, when it comes to people or how God interacts with people, it's like, well, what about, you know, what about so-and-so who hasn't heard? Or what about, you know, and it's like, well, that's great. But here, let me just ask you as a pastor. What, what about, about you? you? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And and so, and that's what Jesus says to John at the end of the book of John, where he's like, yeah, I was walking with Jesus. And, and he, you know, I said, hey, some people are saying this and that about, you know, the, the apostle John, you know, hereafter. And Jesus said, don't worry about them. You, you just go and do 
what I've told you to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What about you? All right. Next time we got to do that in harmony. No, Par- it's parallel no, thirds. So good. <laughs> what about you? What about you? All right. Question three. Are divisions in the church good? How can we be unified as the universal church, yet divided with different denominations? Is the divisions in the church good? I'm fine with denominations, personally. It, they, it used to bother me. Um, I'm cool with it. And I'll show you why. If I can learn to navigate my Bible. So 1 Corinthians 1 is obviously the first place that we, we go here to talk about how divisions in the church are bad. And of course, from a certain perspective in a certain conversation, that's extremely uh, true, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this and then I'm going to contrast divisions with um, diversity of gifts and perspectives, okay? So this is talking about divisions. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, Oh, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Oh, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So, okay, so what do you, and he goes, he goes on from there. But what he's saying here is there shouldn't be divisions in the church in regards to loyalty. He says, we are all of Christ. We were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, they just baptize them in the name of Christ most often because that's the same thing. Right? The name of Christ is the name of the triune God. So the, he uh, he's, he's harping on him there for having factions. Okay, Now, that's, that's bad, but I'm fine with denominations. And the reason for that, not all denominations, I'll specify, but the, the reason for that is because denominations have a functional... Uh, use in carrying out the Great Commission. So, for example, you look at—I mean, even even the history of um, of the Baptist denomination. There were there were the Baptists, and then you had some people that were like, "Well, hey, we've this is what's going on in our area of the country, and we want to support these missionaries, and we need you know we need these um, aid relief efforts and things like that because we've got these catastrophes and this group of poor people and whatever. So we need to pool our resources and uh, support that stuff." Well, then you wind up with an organization and they call themselves maybe the Northern Baptists or the Southern Baptists or the great, uh, the, the uh, uh, conservative Baptists, American Baptists, whatever. So you have all these denominations. They didn't, they didn't form by people saying, you know, well, I think that, that we should speak in tongues. I don't think we should speak in tongues. So forget you, man. And then they peel off. Some denominations did form that way and that's not okay. But you can't, I don't think you can look at denominations and broad brush them and say, that's bad. Okay, so sometimes splitting things up just practically, you got to do that for organization's sake, and we we dwell in great unity with a lot of other denominations, Amen. Right? and that's that's fine. Yeah. And I think sometimes where you get that also, that tends to be a, a an accusation laid upon by, for example, the Catholic Church because of the denominations that came and arose out of the Protestant yeah. Reformation. And it's like, but I will be willing to bet large amounts of money that there's certainly a lot more unity around around denominations that hold to, say, for example, Sola Scriptura or mm-hmm. all of that. There's a unity there, and whether or not it's practiced or whether or not we agree to disagree on particular distinctives, um, I don't think, uh, you know, unless you're super hyper-sectarian, mm-hmm. I, like, I'm not going to throw R.C. Spoil under the bus, even though he and I disagree on... Um, 
like infant baptism yeah, or something. Infant baptism yeah. or something like that. And I think that that's, that actually just, that actually shows an area, uh, not that I'm mature, but he would actually be mature for in allowing me to sit in his church without asking me a theological examination <laughs> about whether or not I sh- I'm a, I'm a baby dunker or not. Yeah. You know, yeah. That kind of a thing. Yeah. And now some, some denominations I, I really have a great appreciation for, and yet I've got some disagreements with them. For example, the Lutherans, I'm, I'm fine with Lutheranism as a, as a denomination. I don't think they should call themselves Lutherans. I don't know how you read first Corinthians one, where it says, don't say that I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. And then they go and say, I'm of Luther. I think, I think that's a swing and a miss. I think the church of Christ and you know, they've got the, the, the church of Christ itself like at its core has some really problematic doctrine that have like not all of the members of the church of Christ know about. So, but if you just take that name church of Christ, they shouldn't have done that. He says in here, some people say I am of Christ. What are you stupid? So it's like, yeah, we shouldn't be calling ourselves the church of Christ in contradistinction to all of you guys. So, you know, there's some of those quibbles and stuff, but when you look at Lutheran history or Anglican history or whatever, I mean, we, we stand on these guys shoulders, man. We need them. Yeah. So yeah, divisions in the church are not all bad. Sometimes siblings need separate bedrooms, you know, and there are, there, I've got, I great, like that. I got great brothers and sisters who I will partner up with on the mission field. And yet if it's time to plant a church together, we're going to disagree on some of these issues like pedo baptism or like church polity or whatever. And so maybe we can't serve on the same elder team, but we don't need to disagree. The world's a big place and it's very much lost. Let's go plant a couple of churches and then we can debate theology over time and hopefully arrive at the correct conclusions. And I think some of these debates honestly were a little bit more, we had space and room for these kinds of debates, say 20, 30 years ago, or maybe even 40 years ago when the church might have been playing on kind of a, on uh what's it on home turf kind yeah, of as it yeah. were in the United States. Whereas now it's like, man, our, our first list world of, problems. Yeah. Our list of friends grows thin. How about we, <laughs> how about we be friends to one another? Well, yeah. And there's a certain sense in which is like, you remember after, uh, after nine 11 and stuff, we were having to talk like this, like, yeah, I'm, I might not get along with my very Pentecostal brothers and sisters because, you know, we have too many biblical disagreements, but they're going to be in the concentration camp right next to me. You know, Precisely. in the same camp, and we're going to be standing next to each other. We got to get our priorities straight. Yeah. So yeah, there are there is such a thing as theological first world problems, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. I like how you say "Amen" after everything we say. It's very affirming, man. I appreciate. Oh that. right. <laughs> it's like okay. <laughs> so why do such we a often Baptist. say that? I know here we are at the back corner. Preach I got to here. me too. I got here early so I can get a back seat. Preach, young man. Hey, why do we often say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that order if none are more significant or divine than the other? <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like it. I mean, Jesus said it in that order, so that's kind of where I would just rest on. It's like baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, yeah, man, that's hard to add to. I, the, if I was gonna, if I was gonna nerd out a little bit, I would add just that. Um, with a, with a big Tim like amen to everything you just said, there's um, there's a a voluntary and a functional subordinate uh, subordinationism, which is a very um, it's an unnecessarily long theological term to mean that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal, and yet there's uh, there's a way that they relate to each other that involves submission. So the Son submits to the Father; he puts himself voluntarily under. The Father. It's not by his nature that he is lesser than the Father. They are one. They are co-equal and co-eternal. But functionally, he says, the Father directs, I go and execute. The Holy Spirit's mission is to testify to Christ, right? Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us to witness to 
Christ. All of the works done by the Spirit, all of the miracles, they are to testify to Christ, and Christ is there to show us the glory of the Father. So it's um, we, we say it in that order. I think, honestly, Ben, you nailed it because that's what Jesus did, right? But it works out being uh, appropriate in, and uh, proper in terms of how they relate to each other and how they reveal themselves uh, ontologically. So, yeah. What is that noise back there? We have some construction going on in the church. Oh, <laughs> he's up there in the attic. Yeah, I was, we're expanding. For a second, I thought someone's cell phone was like playing a YouTube video or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it stopped. I was going to turn the mic up and see if our audience could get the, the full glory of a skill saw in the attic right above us. We did not plan this well. All right, what else we got for this is that? Wait, is there anything else to say on that, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing? I don't think so. Yeah. I just want to say it's really amazing to me. Jesus is telling in the Last Supper, he's looking at his disciples and telling them, it's good for you that I'm leaving because Ooh. then I'll send another comforter. Yeah. It's amazing. There are different offices, and it's just so amazing. Wait, we saw you... Um, we saw you feed 5,000. We saw you give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and raise the dead. And it's good for us if you leave us. <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Thank you, Lord, for your full provision for us in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amazing. All right. Anything else we got on there, Pastor Tim? Uh, producer Tim? Producer, yeah. I'm producer as high as I can go. Uh, <laughs> We're done. That's it. Are you the husband of one wife? Are you, are you biblically qualified? We can just do this thing. <laughs> right. Oh, we're Baptists, man. We can vote. All in favor? No, don't do that. I'm kidding. We're not doing this. Okay. Well, guys, listen. Uh, the world is a messed up place. Can I get an amen? Amen. And uh, we have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> you held back on that one? Really? I, <laughs> you're dropping amens like candy wrappers the whole time, and now when I ask for an amen on the gospel, you're, you're going to hesitate on that? Unbelievable. I'm in left field right now because... I had to avoid the uh, ordination. <laughs> my life almost just changed a second ago. Flash for my eyes. You got to give me some space, man. All right, guys. Well, hey, we'll see you next time. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.